Hello, my name's Eric. And I'm Rissa. And this is Film Chatter. Hi there, and welcome to Film Chatter. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm here as always with my co-host. The lovely Marissa Lopez. <laughs> always with the self-flattery, Marissa. Always. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> and as usual, we bring you the classics, hidden gems, cult, contemporary, and more every two weeks. Today's spotlight is going to be on a pretty important director in the history of cinema. We will be talking about Mr. Luis Bunuel. Yes, Mr. Luis Bunuel. <laughs> Eric's favorite or one of favorites, maybe? I'd say he's pretty important to me, yeah, in, yeah. in his works, yeah. Yeah, can I just say that this was one of your chosen topics? And um, let's, yeah, let the record yeah. show that Marissa <laughs> suffered heavily through oh, this. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I did not, but maybe I might have not chosen this particular topic per se, but um, no, I I. I do enjoy Bunuel's films, but they are, they are, they're, they could be kind of uh, rough to get through maybe a little bit. Um, not an yeah. e- definitely not an easy watch. I would not, not a, like, no, not a stroll through the park. Yeah. Let's just say that um, if you, if, if, if the criticisms can be very rough and some of the elements of his films, which we'll get into in a second are things that are like really important to a lot of people, such as, you know, faith and, and um, you know political ideologies, so uh, mm-hmm. we'll get in more in depth in that in a sec. But mm-hmm. this man, this director, was what I consider a master satirist, and his his whole life he was a vocal critic of many things. But as a citizen of Spain, he was always critical of Spain's institutions. He would attack Catholicism, fascism, and any other institution that he believed reflected hypocrisy in their practices. Uh, He was actually revered by the French New Wave and their movement, uh, Jean-Luc Godard and Eric Romer uh, and many others, and is a big figure of inspiration for them. And I actually see that connection now that I, now that I, you know, think about it. It's like, it's actually really, both of them are not shy to make political statements. Let's just say it that way. When people talk about like art house cinema, I would think of Louis Bunuel. Yeah, definitely in, in the art house realm, for sure. Throughout his whole career, really, he had a pretty expansive career, wouldn't you say? Um, I would actually kind of argue that until his like later ages, you know, because mm. he was kind of like a late bloomer um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, you do. It's, yeah, <laughs> you're more familiar with uh, his works. Than, no, yeah. but I mean, yeah. it just depends on what context you put it in. I think in a way you are right, because um, he was surrounded by some of the greatest artists ever assembled in the surrealist movement, which, I mean, if you know, for those who don't know, Bunuel was at one point, you know, the right hand person to Salvador Dali Salvador and Dali. collaborating with him and Man Ray and Andre Breton and among others. There's that whole, you know, uh, that whole gener, you know, that whole moment in time where all these great artists from all across the world were coming into Paris and, you know, socializing, and he and Bunuel was one of those that was a part of that. Yes, which I want to bring up a point because I thought it was interesting upon like researching with uh, for Louis Bunuel is that yes, he critiqued um, 
you know, a lot of things like religion and whatnot and like, the you know, the bourgeoisie, but it's like, he satirizes his own class, but he's also like comfortable and unabashedly belonging to it as well. So um, yeah, I just like a, a certain quote I, I, that <laughs> I wanna bring up that I, I, I found. Um, he quoted saying, I am still an atheist, thank God. <laughs> He's, it is one of his like many, to me, it's one of his many paradoxes. He was both like inside and outside. So I think he, he understood the neuroses and pettiness of his own middle-class like Catholic upbringing uh, pretty well. He was definitely not uh, somebody that was disengaged from what was going on in his generation. And mm -hmm. that proximity, I think, provides a real good breath of fresh air. And Although he didn't always, what you would say, walk the walk, I think he definitely pointed out so many of the hypocrisies that people just swept under the rug of his era. I mean, controversy is no short thing to this guy. He was always on the, like, he was always, he was always the target of so many different political and, and, and religious factions. Like, for example, mm -hmm. with uh, Viridiana, a film that I'll be talking about later, he was exiled from Spain for that film because of how mm -hmm. much it criticized, you know, the, the aristocracy, the, the you know, the religious societies in that, in that, uh, in that nation. So uh, definitely not shy to controversy as well as anarchism and Freudian themes, which were very popular among the surrealists at that time as well. So. Yeah. It's like the hypocrisies, but it's like also like, it's what I find interesting, like upon researching is that like also like the hypocrisies within his own self too, you know? It's like yeah. he can comment on this stuff, but he also was like comfortably living in it as well. Um, like he enjoyed the fruits of like his own, you know, the social order within his own personal life. So, um, but yeah, you know, like the bourgeoisie, um, I mean, he even has a movie that I'll be going into <laughs> that talks about it. Um, but yeah, I think it, it, it interested him particularly because of its good manners that it like demand, like, the bourgeoisie demanded good manners, but at the like the repression of desire. That's literally within the bourgeoisie is like these, you know, good manners that you must have, but then you at the suppression of desire at the same time. As you learn more, which uh, having read his autobiography, I'm just completely fascinated um, by the era that he lived in, as well as his perspective on it. Um, the more that you learn about Bunuel, I think that there's something that was always, that was, he just had a lump in his throat his whole life that he just wanted to spit out to say about, you know, the, the Spanish institutions that kind of really made him, you know, look like a real anarchist outsider and didn't really allow him to express, you know, the human side of himself that, I mean, so many of his films show, so, show that exact same thing, like the suppression of so many desires. Um, a lot of his films have that same sec you know, theme of desire and sexuality. I mean, one of his films is the Belle du Jour. Oh, are you going to say? I was just going to say the obscure, that obscure object of desire. desire. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, there's these that are... one as well. I love those two films. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are two that make me think. But, you know, even even the, the the topic of desire, I would say like it's sprinkled in all his films, really. Oh, you know, yeah. all, all these all these taboo things are like sprinkled in all his films, like desire, sexual, political, continually intertwined on all his stuff. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I think I think you're right, Eric. Is like his best 
films are a call to an attempt at anarchist freedom. Mm -hmm. Like how are futile both in like love and society? So I just want to point out that the filmography of Luis Buñuel, um, our films today, they're not, <laughs> it's like a, it's an overview, I would say, but we're not really going, we can't go in depth into like every all single of, section. Every, yeah, every single section, <laughs> but um, we kind of broke it down into, uh, there's his earlier uh, period, like the early trilogy, like Unchi and Andalu, um, just to give an example. Then he has like the part, um, his interlude period where he broke away from the Surrealist group um, in May, 1932. Then we have his Mexico years, um, uh, like Los Olvidados. Ah, oh my God, I can't say that word. <laughs> Los Olvidados. Los, Los Olvidados. Um, and then we have like his religious films, Sign of the Desert, The Milky Way, and then uh, ending it with his late period films, um, like the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie uh, to that obscure object of desire. But like, once again, I want to just say, or me and Eric, we would like to just mention that we cannot cover uh, all the details of all his films, but we're just going to highlight um, films from some of the periods, at least a nice overview. Cool. So now that we got that settled, Marissa, you ready to go into your first film? Yes. So uh, my first film of the day is actually going to be, um, well, technically all my films I'll be talking about today are like his later period films and Eric will be mostly focusing on his uh, early to mid. But um, so I'm highlighting one of, what do they, what do they call, uh, one of Luis Buñuel's masterpieces. I mean, they one call of his <laughs> 20, according to masterpieces. Yes, <laughs> but this is one of, I guess, considered one of his masterpieces from his late period. So uh, starting out with film number one, I have The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, released in So, um, this is the briefest of brief synopsis I'm going to give for a film because <laughs> like there's literally like a sentence will cover up, like will like sum up this film. Um, so a group of bourgeois friends attempts to have a sophisticated dinner constantly gets foiled by the most bizarre of circumstances. I mean, like, I, I can't sum it up more than that. <laughs> That's literally, yeah. yes, um, constant attempts uh, throughout the film. That's literally what this movie is about. <laughs> that's like that's something though that i think is actually kind of his thing is is these very like silly simple stories i think especially at the later works that you go into because there's one film that i'll be talking about later that does the exact same thing it's like this just absolutely asinine concept of like you know like yeah. just the basic bones but tell me there's 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 a lot here to discuss i'm sure Seriously, like I, I, I say that even like a movie where not even the simplest goal, in this case, six people sitting down together for a meal 
can reach its fulfillment. <laughs> Something always interferes. Um, but I, uh, before I get into that, I, I have to go over the cast. The cast is pretty, pretty phenom here. Um, so starting off, we have, uh, I, I hear that this is uh, Bunuel's alter ego, oh. uh, Fernando Rey. Oh. Uh, have you read this, Eric? No, I haven't. Okay, That's I just said a little. I just said a little tidbit. You're not aware of yeah. it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we might be dropping those more off. I don't know. But um, okay, so Fernando Ray, he's the one who's an obscure that obscure object of desire as well. Mm -hmm. I really like this guy. He's a great actor. Um, so he plays Rafael Acosta. He's the ambassador of the Republic of Miranda. So um, then we have Paul Franquer as Fran Francois. Okay, my God. Some of the names here, <laughs> the Frenchness <laughs> gets me. Okay, I'll just say that. Francois Thévenot. Um, oh, and then we have, I'm going to have some repeat actors here. Eric, Same, that you're as gonna, me as well. Okay, yep. you're going to be like go. dying over. Okay, so we also have the great Delphine Seyrig. That's right, yes. That's awesome. Love I, her, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she plays Simone Thévenot. Um, and then we have, uh, oh God, I cannot, Bull, oh my God, Bull Ogier as Florin. She plays uh, Simone's sister. Uh, we have Stefan Ajran as uh, Alice uh, Seneschal, uh, Jean-Pierre Cassel as Henry Seneschal. And then we have another great one. Oh my God, this guy, he's literally in all my films and he's literally in other movies I've talked about as well. I was, when I was watching this movie, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to tell Eric. Um, <laughs> we have the great Michel Piccoli. Hey, the big piece. <laughs> um, do you remember where else he was from? The other film I mentioned? Oh, oh, um, uh, tell me it was a musical, right? Yeah, the yeah. The, the young girls mm -hmm. of uh, Rochefort. But, yeah. um, Michelle Picoli is literally in all my films. It's <laughs> to say you're a say you're a super fan is putting it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> say you're a Michelle Picoli fan without saying you're a Michelle Picoli fan. <laughs> um, oh my God. I, it's not like I planned for this, guys, but I really am a Michelle Picoli fan. Um, he's so great. Apparently, yeah, he's he's in all of Manuel's surrealism late late period films. Yeah. Um, and I, I believe that in two of the films, uh, this one, another one I'll be talking about, he literally plays a, a police officer in both of them. <laughs> it's just like he's a he's a minister in this one. Um, and then also I have to mention this character, uh, this actor, because I never heard about her before, but upon research, she's in a lot of Bunuel films. Uh Mooney, am I saying that correct? Mooney. M Mooney. Do, do you know about Mooney? A little bit. I'm not, okay. I, I, I'm not, I didn't know that she was that much of a Bunuel Maverick. Interesting. Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's what they were saying uh, online when I was looking up. Oh yeah, Mooney, uh, she plays a peasant. Um, so, but yeah, going into the film, yes, the simplest goal of them trying to sit down, <laughs> it's like never they'll do it many times throughout the film like different different um different situations just different scenarios but I noticed that like they'll want you know they'll have like a like soup being poured but they can never actually drink the soup or they can never actually order a glass of uh what is it like tea they try to order everything constantly gets interrupted so complications of every kind from the beginning we have cross wires as to this is actually the beginning of the movie cross wires as to the date of the appointment they come over um the seneschal's house 
and they're uh, Alice Seneschal. She's like, she's like in her like nightgown. She's like, what are you guys doing? Like, she's like, this is the wrong day. You're not supposed to be here. And they're like, oh, okay. So like, there's already that weirdness. And so she actually ends up going out with them though. And they go out to this restaurant, but then you find out that there's like, someone's crying in this restaurant. And then, um, so some of the ladies, they get up and in the back of the restaurant, there's, <laughs> there's a funeral being like done at this restaurant. So you have like the glimpsing of this corpse in the back room of the restaurant. It's just honestly, there's some really random ass moments. Um, not only in this film, but in all of like Woodall's films, like that's just like, what? Who thought of yeah. this? It's just, so, the, just like the strangeness of like everyday reality just heightened to like a 10th yes. degree. Yeah. Yes. Heightened is a good way of putting it. Um, so like that one scenario I, I was saying about like them wanting to order like a glass of tea, they can't do it um, because there's this soldier who goes over to these to the to the women sitting down at the table who spontaneously busts out into this really traumatic childhood story about how his about how his mom was like murdered or, or something or his mom died and she haunts him as a ghost that's a that's a recurring thing by the way I noticed in Brunel films um well I guess in his later films I, I can't attest to his earlier stuff but like ghosts, like appar apparitions. Yeah, I think because I, I feel like going back to his influences from the surrealist moment, mm -hmm. it's that examination of the sub of the subconscious that I feel like it, it 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 makes him kind of fascinated with like you know the afterlife and or even just like phantoms, you know, phantoms of your own life. Yeah, yeah, I I really really appreciated those those moments um, because like the movie doesn't really yes it revolves around these friends uh, who are trying to just have a you know a meal together but I appreciated when like it busted out into this scenario of like that soldier just going into his traumatic story like how um what was it uh yeah his mother was appearing to him as a ghost and I love stuff like that um but yeah I just want to say that these these moments of interruption keep piling up and the characters must move on like still in search of like their elusive nourishment um but yeah the more the <laughs> the thing about this is like the more that this very very simple plot device repeats the more it becomes more absurd and dreamlike because it keeps right. happening over and over and over again and you're just like, oh my god! Like, what? You know, these can't these guys can't catch a break. And is it interesting? <laughs> do you find it interesting that it never it doesn't really get overstay its welcome? It doesn't get tiresome, like the device kind of being used over and over again. But every time it feels kind of fresher or feels kind of uh, like a twist on it, that's just like how many how many times is he going to pull this trick out of his bag and like find success? You know. Yes, for me here it worked. I'll go into another one of my films later that I didn't feel like it worked, and mm. I'll go into why. But yeah. here, here I thought it worked um, tremendously. Uh, I really was engaged. I was just like, "What's going to happen next?" Like, yeah, what's what's the rabbit that's going to be pulled out of this like hat? Like, it's like always some kind of trick. Um, but yeah, like meanwhile, as like the polite facade of like normality like starts to slowly crack apart other human desires um, beyond the need for food. So like, I just want to say, like to break away for a moment, um, I was watching this film and, the, and obviously there's like the need for nourishment, right? The need for food and with the bourgeoisie people. This movie did remind me a lot about uh, Le Grand Buffet. Mm, okay. Yeah. It's along that same kind of satirical perspective. Surreal, surreal yeah. too. Cause even that movie, it's showing to the nth degree um, 
about like <laughs> desires really, you know, and how food could be like, you know, it's, it's showing the, yeah, the extremities of all that stuff. So here it also is doing that too, not to like maybe that extent of where <laughs> Le Grand Buffet goes, but um, yeah, like there's the Im impulsive like sex that like comes over, like there's a moment, um, another interruption where the friends come over, they're invited over and the um, seneschals, they're in their room and they're like, you could, they're trying to take each other's clothes off. And then um, I think their, their maid tells them like, oh yeah, the, your guests are here. And they're like, tell them five minutes. And the seneschals actually sneak out of the house to go out into their, their courtyard or something like that to have sex. Sheesh. So it's like <laughs> these, yeah, these impulsive like desires, like they're not suppressing them. And basically the guests actually end up leaving. because they, they, It was not five minutes. Like by the time the seneschals come back, they're like, where are all our guests? And like the maid was like, um, they left. Like you guys were like, took forever <laughs> because they were having sex out in the courtyard but um so yeah all these things like come over um there's even like a murder scene that like also breaks up um like a meal like everything you know so what I'm trying to say is like this film becomes increasingly outrageous scandalous even blasphemous um but while on the surface it's remaining perfectly cool and in control and I would say that's like a combination that was um a Buñuel specialty achieved with like a renewed check and assurance um here so yes um I want to say that in conclusion there's so many odd details but I'm, I was such a fan of it because it kept me engaged I was like what's gonna happen next like there was this whole sequence about like uh Napoleon Bonaparte's like hat <laughs> it's just like really random thing or like there was another sequence like about like how the ladies were sitting down for tea but then they also heard like uh oh yeah a, ch a cello like a chalice like music like she's like oh I can't stand I can't stand the the chalice's um finger or something like that it's like so like weird like it's very like uh like astute it's like on that you know like particular moment so I just want to say like I saw this one years ago but I really honestly couldn't remember a thing about it so um I have I have the Criterion uh box set the three films by Luis Bunuel and in the box set it actually has a really really great booklet I highly recommend reading so in the booklet it actually states um for this movie um one needs to rewatch Discreet Charm every few years to rediscover these delicious oddities, such as the fact that Alice in the opening scene heads out to a restaurant with only a fur coat covering her nightdress and nobody else finds that the least bit strange. I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so true. Like she just like, she comes out with her nightdress and like uh, Delphine Sarik, uh, she gives her like a fur coat to wear. Like there's little like oddities like that that are fully appreciated by me and obviously by others too. So, um, but yeah, I, I do highly recommend this one. Um, it's his later period works. It's considered one of his masterpieces of that era, um, of that time period. Um, and I do recommend, uh, if so, purchasing the three films by Luis Bunuel box set. Okay, so I'm gonna introduce my films on Bunuel with film number one, uh, Un Chien Andalou, an early work of his from the year 1929. <laughs> Thank you. 
this film is kind of a film school darling wouldn't you say <laughs> yeah I was telling Eric that um I had seen this one many times and not many times but like you know like a, like a good amount of times um in film school and uh also randomly someone gave it to <laughs> so I'll mention that because it is pretty um this is a great story yeah <laughs> So when I was in high school, um, a friend of mine at the time actually gave me this. Uh, I forgot, maybe it was for my birthday. I don't remember, but she gave me a DVD copy of Unchi and Andalou. And that was my <laughs> my way into Luis Manuel, but maybe not even really knowing, you know, who he was. Um, but yeah, that was my first time seeing it in high school. So, That's yeah. like, oh my God, if I can like choose a present that I would want for my birthday, like. <laughs> you know most and consider like it's supremely random like that's a great gift yeah but I really I really dug it I was like damn like it's just really awesome this is really mm -hmm. something quite extraordinary and I'll get into the details here so this is a short film made in collaboration with Salvador Dali yes the uh surrealist painter probably the most mm -hmm. famous surrealist of all time um and it's got it's basically guided by the principles of the surrealist art of the surrealist art movement any type of synopsis of a story kind of falls short or is just a personal interpretation because it's it's that abstract but there are many things in it that are so uh so wonderful so shocking that you yes. know it, it's it's much more than just a you know a bunch of random images we'll put it that way mm -hmm. um so this was written by Bunuel and Dali together uh, the cast includes uh, two wonderful actors, Simone Moriel and Pierre Bachef, uh, with appearances by Bunuel and Dali themselves playing smaller parts. And editing and music was, well, by Bunuel, but he didn't make the music. He chose uh, the Wagner piece that's in the film mm -hmm. um, as, a, as the exact piece of music that he wanted to play with this. So about this film, let me just tell you about its premiere, because I think this gives an idea of, of you know the type of the type of uh perception about this film so uh when this film premiered in paris 1929 bunuel famously took stones from the outside and put them in his pockets prepared just in case a riot would break out from seeing this film at its premiere and he would defend himself he said, thankfully, he didn't have to use the stones. <laughs> I, I read that. I, I, read, I think I read that on like researching him too. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> I, thought was, I thought that was funny. I feel like that's like, I feel like I'm going to, if I ever have a, you know, in the future, whatever, a premiere of any type of movie, I feel like just for good luck, I'm just going to take some stones with me. Yeah. <laughs> like not even to defend myself. Them. Yeah. It's just like a good luck. Like, you know, um, a but thing. Yeah. Yeah, a Bunuel, good luck, you know, little, yeah. mm -hmm. a little blessing. But yes, yes this is a, a very audacious film for its time period. And it's in 1929, this is completely black and white. Um, and what I like about the, you know, certain like the film of that era, there's like a certain gold tint to it. Wouldn't you say oh, that yeah. there's like a little mm -hmm. shimmer of like the bronze? That I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know the exact chemical, you know, type of property of the film of that time period that mm -hmm. makes it that way I can explain that but really there is like a beautiful shimmer of like gold tint in those film roles seeing this in that film just makes it that much more beautiful mm -hmm. um, now about the film like I mentioned before it's an association of surrealist practices uh, mixed with film and what the surrealists at the time the, the the art movement the members of the art movement were looking at 
with film, they were fascinated by it, not just because there was ways of making subversive or suggestive statements, but because that there was this type of blending of space and time that like not many other art forms can do as impactful as film can because with film and you see it perfectly in this film you can make something two different parts of the world look like they're connected just from you know an edit which is something that was a hugely hugely uh, promising to the to the surrealist so the one image that is really taught and as emphasizes like one of the most important you know, images ever put on film is the sliced eye at the beginning, right? Yeah. That, mm-hmm. that was, it was kind of still makes it's pretty me kind famous. Of yeah. <laughs> I think they said it was like a cow's eye. Yeah, um, it, they used a cow's eye for that. And it's they, still, I mean, it still looks gross and um, RIP cow. Um, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's gross and kind of jarring when you see it, huh? Yeah, because it's, it's the way that the, the editing is, is paced. So, Bunuel actually plays in the film. He's at the very beginning, plays this masochist kind of like, you know, surgeon looking guy. And mm. so the whole thing is that he's sharpening or like wiping a blade, a little um, like, you know, shaver blade. And he, it cuts to the shot of a woman. And then he walks out, goes back to him. He walks out, he looks up at the moon and in the moon, there's, you know, the big, circular moon and the clouds are coming across Mm -hmm. and as and then they cut back to the action and you see the knife and the woman is being held by the face and it's about to cut her eye but they Mm -hmm. cut away and then they show the moon being sliced by the clouds and it's just this really insane especially for the time period you know it's like this insane kind of concept association that is just so (laughs) it's wonderful it's visual treat yeah, I was I was gonna say I don't know if you're gonna touch on this. Is there a scene where ants are coming out of someone's hand? Yes, and that's another one. Okay, of those, I mean, another it's one of surreal, those. Like <laughs> it burns in your mind. Like you, you that's know, why, once you see it. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, that's so Dolly. Because I feel like he's always dabbled with ants, um, in his own artwork. But um, yeah, okay, I don't want to like say too much more. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're um, right. You're definitely right, and you're 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 gone something good with the ants. So. Mm-hmm. There's this three shot combination about five, six minutes into the film that is just so like incredible. So basically you get one shot of a hand and there's a hole in it and then it cuts away, but it cuts back to the hand. And then inside the hands, you see a whole army of ants just Mm -hmm. come out of the hole in the hand. But then from there, it goes into this little sea urchin type of thing. It fades into like a sea urchin. Mm. And then you're like, wait, wait so hold on like what does this have to do with anything but i think of what it is is like a it's like a compot like a like a what do you call it the composite the composite like the image like the shape of the Mm -hmm. of the sea urchin is Mm -hmm. the exact of the hole in the hand so then you start your mind starts making these associations now the great thing is that it's not like you're it's not like you have to you know double guess like second take if you're if you're right or not really it's just you know you can draw a multiverse of conclusions about just these two images associated together and i've read Mm -hmm. so many different type of interpretations about like these shots and any of them could be really right um (laughs) yeah there's there's no right there's no right answer because it's like all like abstract very all abstract and all very illogical and yes the caveat of this three shot sequence is the third shot because the third shot then cuts to armpit hair 
And oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, like, you're bringing back memories. memories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's. I'm telling you, like you may not remember it at first, but one, you know, it's it's in your mind, and you're like seeing it clearly. Like I, I definitely like it's burned in my mind. I might, I might go a little off, but not, not really. You know, this one, it, it it's up there with like one of the best shorts, like because it really is like a twenty, like twenty, twenty minutes. Yeah, or it's a very you know easy film to watch. One of the best experimental shorts I've ever seen, but also it reminds me of. Have you ever seen Meshes of the Afternoon by Maya oh, no. Maya Darin? No. Another great one. It's very yeah. similar. I think they're just so similar. Like watch those back to back. Like great double feature, but. <laughs> But yeah, um, for the listeners, watch those back to back. Those make a great double feature because they're so like experimental and like what you're just saying with the scenes, those reminded me, I was like, is that Meshes of the Afternoon or like, yeah. Yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great um, association. Is that a, is that a recent short? Uh, and the filmmaker you know, sounds... um, It's from the 20s. Um, so oh, she wow, was, I'm way yeah, off. she Sheesh. was, <laughs> it's okay, Eric. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she she was like also among those like surreal experimental um, directors. Um, yeah, Maya Maya Darin, she's like similar similar in that regard too. Sweet, those, yeah. those shots, those really illogical shots. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they were associated with, with the same like you know social group somehow. I, I wouldn't be so. surprised. I think yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole era. I'm just like. You know, fascinating huh it's so fascinating but there's also that movie if you want to know more about that era in a like in a movie format just watch midnight in paris oh my god <laughs> i was like i was like okay it's either gonna be me or eric that's gonna bring up that movie <laughs> yeah. i was literally actually i was gonna bring it up on the on the first movie i talked about <laughs> because <laughs> don't you remember that one scene where he talks about he's yes. talking to he was like something about you're gonna make a movie about like how people cannot leave like a dinner or something they can't have party. a dinner yeah and he's like but I don't get it but why the why can't they <laughs> and he just starts wandering off like wait but why and they're like yeah, yeah. yeah. he's like but why I don't I don't get it and mm-hmm. um yeah who's the one who's like oh rhinoceros oh yeah, yeah that's Dali. I see a rhinoceros yeah that, oh my god that Adrian Brody impression is really pretty hilarious I lo- oh and then Man Ray Man Ray's um, mm-hmm. um also sitting there too but um oh my god I love that movie I'm yeah. so glad you brought that up because <laughs> that's a that's a good like little yeah watch that movie um if you want to see that that time period it's such a good companion piece for what we're talking about just to get an mm-hmm. idea of the you know Paris and of that time like I feel mm-hmm. like that was so impactful there's a lot more to that whole time period books even like I mean another one I would say is you know Ernest Hemingway's um mm. A Movable Feast oh okay I think that's like you're not talking about Gatsby. Gatsby. (laughs) I was like, okay. Um, He's in that too. F. Scott Fitzgerald. He's like a real main character. And so is Hemingway. That's right. I love the Hemingway um, done by, I can't remember the actor's name. He's wonderful, man. I don't, oh my God. He's a great Hemingway. He's like, (laughs) you ever, you ever shot a, (laughs) (laughs) you ever shot like a lion or something like that? you ever made love to and I was just like oh my god like actually yep. I feel like they nailed like or that guy he nailed like um, yeah totally it's <laughs> such a great portrayal of him yeah I freaking love that movie um mm-hmm. but yeah good I'm so glad you brought that up right yeah the 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 Hemingway I was going to mention earlier I totally could remember it was a movable feast so definitely yes. check that out too if you want to you want to you know subjective but good perspective on that time period mm-hmm. um but about I <laughs> want to say well. 
I want to say one more <laughs> thing about this film, and that is the ending shot, which to me is like one of the most incredible shots, ending shots, like in in my personal opinion, I think I've ever seen. Um, which is just as shocking as the sliced eye. Uh, I don't want to say it. I think it's worth the shock to see it for the first time, but it's it really comes. It's really one another one of those images that really doesn't have a logical conclusion, but it's so rich in just one mm-hmm. shot. So much richness of what you just saw for the last twenty minutes, and in one shot, you're kind of rethinking everything. Uh, I think it's really brilliant. But I mean, what can what do you expect from two of the greatest surrealist minds? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so in conclusion, this is a true classic with some of the most memorable images in cinema uh, from two of the most brilliant minds in the surrealist movement and a must see really for any cinephile. And to be honest, I think with the ease of access to watch this film, uh, it should most more audiences should just watch it and really get exposed to this type of this little you know corner of, of, of filmmaking because it's fascinating. Um, and it's I think I'd argue it's pretty accessible especially this film among his other, you know, works. It may be weird, but definitely it's something that's not as uh, aggressive as some of his later films. Um, and if you want to watch Unchen Andalu, you can search it up on YouTube. Uh, it'll be there with the, with or without the Wagner soundtrack. So check it out. All righty. Well, on to my second film, uh, which is also still part of his later period work. Um, so we have The Phantom of Liberty, released in 1974. Qui êtes-vous? Allô, monsieur le préfet. Figurez-vous que nous avons arrêté un kidam qui se prétend le préfet de police. C'est curieux. Dites-moi, est-ce qu'il me ressemble Et Monsieur le préfet, c'est votre sœur, Marguerite. Eh bien, Georges, vous l'envoyez se faire foutre. Avec votre permission, madame. Et maintenant, je vais vous montrer de très jolies images. Vous connaissez ceci Oui, c'est une image. Une image miraculeuse de Saint-Joseph. Quelle honte Fais voir. C'est dégoûtant. C'est que je suis avec quatre messieurs. Quatre messieurs Nous pourrions connaître les invités. Les cinquante les scapulaires. J'ouvre d'une vierge. Pour boire. Dès que l'on compare une culture à une autre. Tout est une question de point de vue. On est toujours le barbare de quelqu'un. Je fais disposer 12 quarts de CRS dans les abus tout autour. Mais pas tous ensemble. Dispersés, les uns ici, les autres là, pour ne pas alarmer les gens. OK, so... Um... If I can do a synopsis of this movie justice, um, but even trying to find a synopsis online um, was kind of hard because it's hard to sum up this movie. There is really, there's really uh, no plot and no main characters, really, if you think about it. Okay, so um, in this logical series of events, reality disappears and bourgeois convention is demolished, featuring an elegant soiree with guests seated on toilet bowls poker-playing monks using religious medals as chips, 
and police officers looking for a missing girl who is right under their noses. I mean, that's <laughs> really can't. There is no real synopsis of this movie. It's that's, about <laughs> that's a trademark. You know, it's a recognizable. I feel yes. like a recognizable asset to to Benwell. This movie literally defies structure. And you know what? I think for another film, I'd be like, I'm all for it. But for this one, um, I will say I didn't really find that it worked. But before maybe I, I get into my thoughts on it, um, I want to go over the cast because they're some of the regular, <laughs> we have some regular uh, of the Bunuel players here. And also I'm going to mention uh, one of my favorites. Uh, she's not, she's not really a Bunuel uh, regular, but she's one of my favorite actresses. Uh, we have the great Monica Vitti. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This Love was her, her only appearance in a Bunuel film, I think. Really? I think so. Yeah. And it's so brief too, honestly. She literally has like one segment. And then it's like that's on crazy. to the next. I was excited. I was kind of, kind of bummed. I'm telling you, this that's yeah. the way the movie works. Mm-hmm. It goes from one segment to the next, to the next, to the next. And so it's like, I was like, are we going to go back to Monica Vitti? Because I was like really into like <laughs> what she had to say. But um, yeah. so yeah, we have uh, Monica Vitti as Mrs. Uh, Foucault. And then we have uh, another regular. We have Jean-Claude uh, Riley as Mr. Foucault. Um, and then we have, these are, I'm just going to name like all regulars now. So we have uh, Julien Berthaud, the first uh, prefect of police. And then we have, um, I'm not going to go too much into the cast. I'm just like highlighting some of the, some, some of the ones I'm familiar with. Um, we have the great Michel Piccoli. There he is. <laughs> as second prefect of police, another kind of police officer um, type of character. So yes, um, this movie um basically i want to say that this is his most uninhabited like he's literally defied like he's taken surrealism to the extreme here i felt um because i've seen like a few of his later works now and uh like the discreet charm and like that obscure object of desire and i'm just like okay like yeah those are those are his later works and he's he's really going there with the surrealism but this one is like to the to the nth degree um so yeah uh Bunuel here he perceived a logical irrationality at work in human affairs so his films like explore the realms of like fixation and unconscious desire that elude any conventional dramatic tidiness um as maybe like his earlier films so like after the milky way um in 1969 Bunuel began demolishing the few the few norms of um, Aristotle Aristotelian structure he had. So, yeah, structure out the door with this one. Um, this film is literally a compendium of like surprises. Um, it's like pointless to even go into plot, <laughs> as there's really none. So as the film shifts attention not only from a central char- central character like the Mon- you know Monica Vitti character i think for any normal audience you know member like who's watching the movie you're used to that you know it's kind of jarring actually even for me who i feel like i've watched a gazillion films at this point but like it was jarring for me too cuz like i'm still used to that of like a certain narrative structure especially at film school that's all they teach you they don't teach you to go outside <laughs> of those lines right eric would yeah, you say agreed <laughs> yeah they really don't it's yeah um so 
I was like almost kind of like maybe because Monica Vitti was you know she was such a big name back then I was like assuming I was like oh cool like this is going to be a movie about her it really wasn't and I was like I was like <gasps> like you know it's like a gas when like they really what they had like 10 minutes of her and that was it the rest of the movie is something else so it it shifts from central character to a minor one who then becomes the central character but also See, this is a, I guess this is a Bunuel thing. Another, another darring element is not only the character elements of like how sh shifting from minor to major to my, you know, like all that stuff. We also have shifting from one time period to another because mm. the film actually starts off in like Napoleon Bonaparte times. I'm not so going to say- What's with the obsession with Napoleon Bonaparte? Oh, I'm not She's sure actually. Films. Yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, in his other films, like, um, yeah, all actually all the ones that I saw, it did the same thing, the shifting from time periods, like uh, another one I'll be mentioning, um, they go back to, yeah, like, uh, what is it, like the Middle Ages or something like that. So, yeah, and in this one, yeah, Napoleon Bonaparte times, like the movie literally starts off with that. I think actually that was probably... That was probably like the coolest transition. It really was because oh. it it opened up in that in like Napoleon Bonaparte times and um, and then all of a sudden you hear someone reading like a narrator and you're just like oh, okay like and then all of a sudden the, the camera starts panning out and it's actually um, <laughs> it's the, uh, the actor Mooney. Okay. She's, yeah, she's yeah. on the bench and it's present day and she's on the bench next to another lady and she's reading the she's reading this book. And she's reading the story of that of that scene. Mm -hmm. she, so it's like that's a little. That does that remind me of Forrest Gump? I don't know. Maybe it's just because <laughs> I, I watched it the other day and I was like, oh, okay, so we got a little Forrest Gump going on here. <laughs> or Forrest Gump took their inspiration from. That's Manuel. right. That's right. Hey, right. Um, <laughs> I'm watching you, Tommy. <laughs> I I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I was like, that's a nice transition from such a time that's so far ago. You know. So we have that and she's reading this book and she's reading this story about Napoleon's story and she's reading to this lady. And then all of a sudden it's like present day in, in that time period. And then they go, you know, so I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So there are many, many creative liberties with that. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I say, like, I think if this is his, his most like uninhibited, like it's just, it sounds like, you know, if I had to use a really kind of audacious term for an audacious filmmaker, it kind of sounds mm -hmm. like like a bastard film to like the rest of his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you like, could say that. Like it's his like, unbound imagination, really. I think it's literally Bunuel not giving a fuck. Yeah. Like for lack of a better word. Mm. <laughs> I really do. I feel like, and I, I think I even read that honestly to some extent, like they didn't say X quite as I did, but like in the booklet, um, for the box set I, I believe that they were saying that too like it's just his his anarchist inside him that at this point he was just like f it we're gonna go with it um yeah you could say that some of the, like the anarchist spirit you know that he's going for um oh yeah I don't, I don't it's know. strange to see it on a meta level though is that is that right like you know something that goes beyond the the, the narrative which is actually uh attacking you know the foundations of storytelling you know, mm -hmm. which is, I, it's such a, it's a, it can be a liberating and jarring experience, but uh, it's to be the one 
to pull that off, you have to write a new language almost. It's quite a challenge. Yes, and I, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like in, sometimes some restraint might be good. Yeah, and in this one, some restraint might have might have done it justice. So, um, like I don't really have much more I want to say about it because I'm I'm telling y'all like there is no plot. It's literally one scene to the next to the next, and there's no there's no meaning really behind a lot of it. And upon actually uh, researching, did we talk about this before, Eric, about the titles about some of these that like Bunuel? Do you want to say that? Yeah, so the way I understand it is that Bunuel usually just titled films based on like the way that they sounded. Like, <laughs> you know, like, so tell me not though that the like film titles like The Obscure Object of Desire and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, they really don't connect to the film, but they, they, they do loosely, but they like, he chose them because they sound beautiful together. Like they sound like really great titles. And he's like, yeah, that's a great title name. um yeah he pulled them out of like a a hat right he (laughs) like he wrote down different words I don't know but okay I I just found this part because yeah when I read this I thought of what what you said before about that the whole title thing so like I'm gonna read out a little segment right now from the booklet um what is it (laughs) what does it mean Phantom of Liberty Bunuel joked that the title was a collaboration between himself and Karl Marx <laughs> the one that crosses 100 years of, of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's, yeah, the, fa- <laughs> the Phantom of Liberty. See, even in the booklet, they're like, it would be criminal to go on and silly to relate the plot of the Phantom of Liberty. <laughs> because, wow. oh, yeah, that's, I'm telling you, it's just, there's really not a whole lot to say about. Yeah. Um, I think I just want to say in conclusion what I really haven't stated before um for me because of the fact that it was so jarring how it was just like so from one sequence to the next to the next and it didn't stop is that that's the thing there was no um room to breathe so for me it was hard to engage if I'm being honest and I found it to be a big bore and a slog to get through I know I'm being really cruel right now but no that's totally <laughs> that's totally fair because you know, I think of many people would probably share your same perspective on this film. And and a good it's a good testament to say just because it's challenging and it criticizes and it points something out and it dares you does mm-hmm. not exactly make it successful in that in in cinema. Like that's just, you know, it it experiments are great because they set the framework for maybe somebody down the road to be like you know what that didn't work let me let me try let me see if I can crack this code mm-hmm. um and I feel like you know from my perspective I feel like that's the value of this film is just to look at the audacity of it but after that it's just kind of hard to really get something out of it you know like you know so you definitely you know you're in you're in your right to like you know say that this one didn't do it for you totally yeah yeah I was like I was like okay like I I'm I, I I sometimes do this too. Like I'll look at how other people review it and like they'll view it, you know, favorably. And I was like, you know what? I really am going to stick to my guns on this because I did not, I actually did not care for this one um, because I personally, I think it's his most disconnected. Um, mm. I mean, I say that out of the ones I've seen, you know, um, but like with so many stories going on from one thing to the next, it was really hard to keep up. Um, I just feel like this one really needed to breathe. Um, so yeah, sorry, sorry, y'all. I'm not a fan of this one. <laughs> But, um, you know, 
hey, it's like, I'm not gonna like tell you not to watch it. You know, everyone should see it for themselves. Um, especially if you're interested in Bunuel's filmography, you know, don't, don't just like discredit it, like check it out for yourself. Um, but yes, this one is part of the three films by Luis Bunuel box set. Okay, so my film number two, uh, this is one of my favorite sounding titles of like most movies. I think this is such a cool title. It was actually the first, or actually the second Boonwell I watched. The first one is one that I don't think anybody would have guessed that I would watch and is actually Robinson Crusoe, his oh. adaptation of that story. That was my mm -hmm. first Boonwell watch. And I just, let's just say that uh, it's like the, the different one, the far different one from a lot of That was of the ones. first Brunel film that you watched? Mm hmm Weird, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was the second though. And I chose it by title alone because I was like, this sounds mm. really cool. It's The Exterminating mm. Angel, released in 1962. deliciosa noche que nos ha ofrecido nuestra amiga Silvia con su estupenda creación de la novia virgen de la mermud. Me van a perdonar si altero un poco el orden natural del menú. Vamos a comenzar con un guiso maltés que según costumbre en la isla se sirve como order. Parece que abre el apetito. Hígado, miel, almendras y con una salsa muy especiada. Definitely has nothing to do, well, maybe it does. I just don't read it that way, but really is detached from the storyline of this film, which this is the kind of hilariously silly story. Um, the one that was mentioned in Midnight in Paris about a group of uh, dinner, a group of aristocrats at a dinner oh. party who can't leave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, basically, that's a story. I don't have to really say much other than that. That's basically this a group is that of stories. No, no, that, that's oh, the story. Okay. No, I mean, it's depending on whose side you're on, it's a little sad. Oh, but. okay, okay. I was like, damn, he really reworked another <laughs> idea. Like, okay. This is probably the most, one of the most absurd up there with the, uh, you know, the discreet charm. Because mm -hmm. basically, this group of Spanish aristocrats, these, they go to a dinner party hosted by the nobiles. And they can't okay so strange things start happening the first thing that's really strange that starts happening is that the the, the staff of the nobilis basically just start leaving over these strange reasons oh my sister got a sickness so i gotta go check on her or oh uh, you know i got this going on and it's just very inopportunistic and i'm sorry i can't work tonight after all and every single one of them leaves except one and that's the that's the head, you know, table staff member. And he does basically, you know, the job of everybody. But I think that that that's such a sly detail. And I think that explains what happens next, which is 
after the dinner party, the group of Spanish aristocrats in this in this mansion, they go to this salon that's at like the top of the house. And they kind of like, you know, have a little lounge thing. They play the piano. And then as they're about to leave, it's like three in the morning. Suddenly they're like, oh, but but wait a minute. There's what about when they start like doing things? They start like they just don't leave. So mm-hmm. they they start having conversations or they just like sit down on a couch and they're like, I'm really tired. I think I'm just going to, you know, just stay here and it's like <laughs> i was gonna mention something right now but maybe not <laughs> what is it i gotta hear it oh that you fell asleep eric <laughs> oh, like i did yeah yeah they just they sat was, down was that and the fell moment asleep. was that the moment that you, you know what to... okay so a little context i fell asleep in both my viewings of this film um both times it's a slow burner i will say it's a slow burner we weren't going to mention that but i'm sorry i just i, I saw an opportunity and i jumped <laughs> if, in if the opportunity's there you know why not <laughs> and it's not it's not that bad but i because i i view falling asleep during a movie actually kind of positively um i actually think <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a fun thing i think it's like part of the experience sometimes but marissa i know you think of it differently yeah, no, that would that would indicate to me that it's like a bore. But <laughs> obviously, to you, it's like a lullaby. So you told me before this, like, it's like a lullaby in a weird way, like, yeah, I just don't have a problem with it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I miss something. Oh, well, we'll yeah. pick back up. Like a little, a little Boonwell lullaby <laughs> to rock rocking, you to sleep. <laughs> rocking me to sleep. Yeah, you did a bad job because I woke up after like ten minutes. But um, <laughs> anyways, yeah, no, they just start like passing out, like I did, and like it's just like why. Well, you're just asking yourself why and so it starts off pretty innocently but then suddenly hours turn to days i think turn to a week and they just don't leave and it's something holding them there that is not explained it's not even explained when they leave there's just this strange explanation of how they can get out which is also strange you know and so it's it's a, it's a very inexplicable movie for that reason but it's the way that it's more so the character development that I think really gets the point across here. This is Bunuel's, I think, pivotal, like his, like his trademark mix of like a classical framework and his surreal comedy perspective. Because like this film and some of the other films, you know, Sans Phantom Liberty, where he just goes, you know, off the wall, he takes the Arist- Aristotelian framework and like punishes it with this surreal perspective this sort of like you know humorous look at institutions like i said institutions that he just doesn't like or that he mm-hmm. thinks are hypocrites yeah. and so in that way the, the way that he gets his point across in this film is really because at the start the you know this aristocratic aristocratic group of people they're just you know they're just lollygagging they're just hanging around but then it quickly becomes oh shit we have no food we have no water uh it's hot as hell in here so then they start resorting to chaos and they start like you know hurting each other or like trying to attack each other they, mm-hmm. it shows how quickly their aristocracy will turn on each other in a, in a situation where their survival is is you know is is, is key and so it and at the same time you know it's like what's really stopping these people <laughs> nothing there's no wall in, to get out of the room and the humor of it all is how desperate they get by something that's not even there and so you see where it hints at some kind of commentary about, you know, the aristocracy of, 
you know, what I'm guessing he's talking about, which is Spain, you know, Spain. The, bur the bourgeois, like when you take away, um, like, like what I said earlier, like the good, the good manners, like of people, when you strip all that away, like, you know, what do you have then? Like the, the carnal actions of people really, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. when you take away moral codes what are you left with basically you know you're left with a lot of actions and whatnot so that's what it sounds I'm, I'm getting from that that's just, yeah I mean that's pretty that's pretty accurate and again talking about like <clears throat> how certain directors rework the same things over and over again I feel like this is that attempt but this one it feels so absurd that it it's really sticks out in his in his like filmography for that reason. It feels like a really blunt kind of like a really blunt assessment of of that group of people because the obstacle isn't even there. It's on it's really all in their heads. There's this really great moment where one of the one of the members of the group turns to another and he goes, "You know what I was thinking about the other day? I was thinking about how if I really wanted to how weird it would be if I just pushed you through that, through that corridor, the one where they think the blockage is. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, you do that and I'll kill you, like in cold blood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's that dark humor that makes this such an entertaining watch. And he's yeah. definitely at his like most satirical, um, really dramatic in a way too, in this film. So Some a, lot of the, of, a lot of oddities, huh? A lot of oddities, yeah, which is, yeah. again, you know, Familiar theme. Yeah, familiar theme for sure. I will say too, what makes this film stand out is the exceptional lighting of every scene. I think that this film is one of the more beautifully lit scene, like films of his, of his uh, filmography. There's this really great moment, a uh, bit of a spoiler, but I'll avoid the spoiler, uh, of a couple who we see in a really beautiful moment, um, kind of tragic moment, and the 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 shot is just breathtaking. You know, it's it's totally blacked out behind them, but their faces are just immaculate. A really great, really great picture to look at. Uh, one of my favorite scenes here is one of the, there's this moment after, you know, they're beyond desperate, uh, surrealism kicks in. You know, the surreal um, influence Bunuel had. And each member of the aristocracy starts hallucinating this kind of nightmare scenario in their heads. And they include things like thunder and, and children laughing and like even a walking hand, like calling back to the Adams family here, which I don't, maybe the Adams family was inspired by this. Hand. But yeah, the hand, <laughs> but it's literally like a little walking hand that this, you know, woman hallucinates and yeah. she tries to stab it, but then she realizes it was a hallucination. She almost stabbed one of the other people, one of the other women's hands. <laughs> Crazy. It's, it's such a cool, surreal moment. I think it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of oddities like that in this one. And um, an ending that really hits like a hammer. Like, and it's something that's very indecipherable in a way. I was really kind of, uh, I was really couldn't, I really couldn't break down the ending. There's just this one final scene. Um, it's kind of an ironic scene, but there's like a real heavy, you know, feeling to it that I just couldn't, I just couldn't break it down. And maybe I didn't want to, maybe I don't need to, so. Um, but in conclusion, this is a really intelligent, and at the same time, a rational statement by Bunuel. And it's, such, it's out of such a small and silly idea, another one of his trademarks. And an essential watch, really, for minimalist storytelling. And its pessimistic view, I think, is really refreshing due to its masterful precision of criticism. Um, and I believe it also will be enriched by your understanding of maybe Spanish history or, or French history and connections to Mexico. I think that that 
history only enriches your understanding of a Bunuel film. And if you want to watch this film, it's on Criterion, or you can put your, purchase the Blu-ray from Criterion as well. So uh, my last film of the day, uh, we have a film from also uh, Bunuel's later period. Uh, we have The Milky Way, released in 1969. Comment Mais regardez, quand le diable prend la forme d'un loup, par exemple, ben il est un loup, mais ben il est toujours le diable. Comique Oui. Et non. Je ne suis pas venu sur la terre pour apporter la paix, mais le glaive. Révolutionnaire Oui. Et non. Monsieur, la charité, tu as de l'argent Non, monsieur, non. Alors tu n'auras rien, rien du tout. Tenez, on est pressé. Ironique Oui, et non. T'as de l'argent On a même de l'or. On peut voir. Mystique Oui. Et non. Tiens, tu saignes encore de l'oreille Cruel Oui. Et non. Je vous trouve très belle. Vous êtes gentil, je vous remercie. Insolite Oui. Et non. Prenez une prostituée. Et faites des enfants de prostitution. Je voudrais que tu me fasses un enfant. <rire> Pourquoi Il paraît que votre femme attend encore un enfant. Comme on est paris, je n'en rate pas une. Audacieux Oui. Et non. Ah, s'il existe ton Dieu, que je le hais. Provoquant Oui, car c'est un film de Louis Bunuel. So with this film, um, I had the most fun with this film, actually. Um, I was telling Eric that, yeah, I really, really, uh, I really, really dig in this one. So um, let's get into the synopsis. So, uh, so Jean and Pierre are drifters who travel from Paris to Spain on the way of Santiago de Compostela route. On the journey, the two men encounter many strangers who debate aspects of Catholic faith as well as heresies that have been rejected by the religion. Their trek defies time as they meet historical figures such as Jesus and the Marquis de Sade. At the end of their trip, Jean and Pierre are left with more questions than answers. Great, great synopsis. Yeah. 
How does that sound? Does that intrigue you? That really intrigued me. I think what most stood out is that they leave with more questions than answers. And I feel like, okay, we both are from a little bit from a Catholic background yes, or have I'm, that in our I'm background. glad you're bringing that up. Yes. Because, mm-hmm. okay, so one thing that I think is very common for people who are, who grow up in, you know, a Catholic environment, but don't necessarily become Catholics as they're older is they, they have a lot of questions and they don't really get solid answers for it, you know? Yes, um, that was, yeah, thank you for bringing that up because that's a very important, I, maybe that's why I connected to this film so much. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not going to get into like, oh, what's my religion or whatever. Well, let's just say that like I, um, or if I have one or not, but like I was brought up uh, Catholic as you were too, right, mm-hmm. Eric? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say I'm definitely no longer Catholic, Um but yeah I was raised that way and I I would say that like growing up even as a young girl like I had a ton of questions about the catholic church about religion about faith and honestly sometimes just people like didn't really give me the answers that I was seeking and um I guess I like to say that like you know like now later in my life like you know I I think I'm comfortable where I'm at, where I'm like, okay, you know, I, I no longer, I mean, even at a, younger, at a younger age, I didn't really resonate with that, but I can say that right now in my life, I can find, I found something that works for me, but as saying, as like, you know, someone who was brought up with the Catholic religion, um, there, yeah, there's just so much, I would say, I'll just say it, like so much rules and regulations you know, and that doesn't vibe with people, especially if you're brought up that way, like, you're almost told, like, not to really question things, you know, like, why are things that certain way, like, why the Virgin Mary, <laughs> like, things don't really, like, make sense, or, you know, stuff like that, Jesus turning water into wine, I don't know, like, I'm mean, like, those are not the questions, like, I really, you know, ask, but, like, th- there's just so many, there's so many, like, stories, you know, being told, and, like, who's to say those stories were, like, you know, myth you know or like did they really like some people really uh, you know I think in religion is they say those things as so matter of factly and that has always bothered me I think it also is kind of an imagination crusher when you have such abstract answers to questions that really seem like they can be answered definitively or maybe alternatively Mm -hmm. and so and not to mention in your adolescence growing up, you just naturally question things. You become more aware of your existence. So you start asking yourself important questions. And I know mm-hmm. that for me too, at a certain point, sometimes the answers that I got weren't satisfi- satisfying my itch to understand bigger things. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, I also think I'm at a point too where you eventually just find peace with what you have and you know, I'm definitely not somebody to, um, you know, maybe bash the Catholic religion, like maybe some some Bunuel films have. Mm-hmm. But historically speaking, I do think that there are some noticeable hypocrisies, right? Because of how mm-hmm. close the uh, religious institutions were with certain with certain governments, especially, you know, the, Span- the Spanish government. And mm-hmm. Bunuel very much keys in on that too so when we're talking about coming at this you know a little um 
like we understand it on a certain level. I feel like that's what we're seeing is like we we have a firsthand experience maybe questioning the same things that are done in this film, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for that, it's like kind of a, it's kind of a nice feeling because you know you're not alone on that, you know? Like, you know that maybe questioning is was the right thing to do at the time, like, you know? And if you don't have answers, well, you're not alone, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, you know, there's, and there's people who, uh, if, you were, if you were brought up that way, well, you know, you're going to fall in line with that way, you know, then there's the people who don't question it, you know, so, but yeah, I guess, you know, me and Eric, we did not fall <laughs> into that, into that line, but um, I know what you're saying about, like, the whole um, Bunuel, you know, he, his commentaries on religion, what I actually enjoyed about this one is that it ties into his, you know, his quote that he said, I'm an, a- I'm an atheist, thank God, to me, I don't know, I guess the way that I interpret Bunuel is, yes, for sure, he was like, you know, he stated he was an atheist and all that stuff, but I'd be hard-pressed to say that this guy was not, you know, he was deeply fascinated with Catholicism and and religion, um, but specifically Catholicism, because that's what the film um, touches on, so I, I like that about that, and, and in the film also, like, Sure, he goes into like the critiques within Catholicism, but he also touches upon, there's like a segment also where a priest talks to a soldier, a sergeant, um, about the mysteries of faith. And I really like that part. Um, And basically the priest was trying to say that like, you know, some things are just like a, a mystery and people can't actually fathom that because they need things so concrete. You know, it's either this way or that way. And that's, I feel like that has been the problem within uh, organized religion is what it is that people cannot see beyond the no this is the clear way and this you know this is what and it's that sometimes it's just like you can't quantify that it's just up to the mysteries you know i'd argue too that it's also a very western thing to have an analytical answer to yeah. to mm-hmm. the problems in your life a, a solution right but sometimes you know and bunuel's films are great cases is that sometimes things don't have explanations you know sometimes mm-hmm. things are the way they are and you have to accept it as it is and uh that's like the peace that's the peaceful aspect i think of, of bunuel's philosophies in his films is that piece of just knowing that you don't know yeah and that's great yeah that's what i i appreciated about this film it's not just like oh it's just critiquing catholicism it, it, he also touched upon that like some things you really they're not so black and white. They're not the duality as like, you know, Western, I, you know, we're obsessed with the duality, you know, thinking. And uh, yeah, so I just, I love that. Um, but I want to get into a little bit of the cast. I just want to touch upon the cast a little bit because I thought it was pretty um, amazing. Some, some really great actors here that need to be highlighted. So, um, so for Pierre, we have Paul uh, Francoeur. Uh, for Jean, we have Laurent Terzieff. Um, Ellen Cooney plays the man with the cape. Um, so, the, <laughs> okay, there's a really, um, see, that's why this film's so great. There literally is a moment that happens in the beginning of the film that you don't really think much of, but that ties in with the ending. So mm. it's like he literally did a whole, like, like 180 like he was just like the like yeah so it's just like okay we close the circle here yeah um so yeah Ellen Cooney plays the man with the cape um and actually upon research 
the man with the cape is actually supposed to be the prophet Hosea, mm. who's actually the prophet of doom. So in the movie, so um, right off the bat, we have uh, we have Pierre and Jean, the two drifters who are, you know, who are starting off their trek and they come across this man in the cave. And by the way, Eric, <laughs> I wanted to mention this. I wanted to tell you this scenario is so Lynch. It's so Lynchian or whatever you want to call it. Like I was like, <laughs> David Lynch must have gotten direct inspo from this man in the cave sequence because I was like, did I not see the sequence in like Twin Peaks? It was so like, and you know, like Lynch is known for also like, you know, sur surreal or Lynchian things, but my God, this, the sequence was so like Lynch, like, I don't know. I just had those, like, I wanted to mention that. So, um, so yeah, the two, the two drifters come across this man in a cave and he looks kind of, yeah, he looks kind of, um, brooding, like, you know, like a, a really shifty, mysterious guy. Um, and then, uh, so, okay. So I think it's Pierre. I'm not sure. Actually, one of the, one of the guys, he asked him, uh, the man in the Cape for alms. He was like, Oh, alms, sir, uh, some money. And the, the man in the Cape is like, do you have any money? And the guy's like, no, he's like, I'm not going to give you money then. And then he asked the older guy. Um, and the older guy's like, I have some money. He was like, I'll give you more money then. He's like, now you have more. And then, so they're like, the, the whole man's like, great. <laughs> so like, now he has money and then his friend doesn't. And then the man in the cape, he starts to walk away and then he turns to, towards them. And he, <laughs> this is just so weird. It's such a surreal thing. But he, he tells these guys, he was like, on your trek, you're going to find a harlot. I want you to have, a, uh, I want you to have children with this harlot. One of the childs named them, you are not my people. And the other child named name them have no mercy <laughs> it's just... but you know what what's that came across so it sounds yeah. like such a biblical scenario i know like this is what's that's fascinating so it's almost like a biblical mm -hmm. scenario adapted to you know mo like the modern time of this time 1969 that's incredible i really like that Yes. And I'm going to like, I, I don't want to say the ending because, that, okay, well, like that would really spoil the ending, especially if you like, uh, I recommend you watch this. Um, so I won't say how that's tied in with the ending, but um, throughout these guys' journey on this trek, they meet, they meet many, many people. They meet like, you know, Jesus, the Virgin Mary and, um, and all this stuff. So um, they meet Satan. That was one of my, that was one of my favorite sequences actually uh, it has the actor who plays satan um from are you familiar with like pierre Paul, paolo pasolini not too familiar i i know you heard okay yeah the one who made uh solo <laughs> nice. the, one who, the one who made uh solo <laughs> and he's made other films too but most people when they think of like uh they like they hear a solo and how controversial that film is whatever but um yeah, this guy, uh, I guess, yeah, he worked with like Bertolucci, Pasolini, and he also worked with uh, Bunuel in this film. But um, I guess, what's his name? Uh, I have his name here, the devil. Uh, oh, Pierre Clementi. Mm. He is a great actor. So he plays, uh, he plays the devil here. So um, let me just say that sequence really fast because I love this sequence. It was, it was just badass. Um, so uh these guys on their trek so they're getting tired and they want they're trying to hitch a ride so like you know they're doing like the hitch you know the hitch um hiker symbol with their hands and then there's a car uh, rushing by and then they're like you know pull over and the guy doesn't do it and he keeps speeding off and then one of the guys is like 
oh man, I wish that guy would just crash and burn. And then the next thing you know, the car just crashes and it burns. And the guy, um, so then they rush over to the guy and then one of them is like, oh my God, we should save him. And the guy's like, no, he died. And then they just like, they're, they're really sad. They're really bummed. And then um, the next thing, you know, like they're walking away and then they look over and in the backseat of the car is the devil. Oh, yeah. So that's the Pierre Clemente character. And then they're like, Hey, you weren't in here when we checked the car. And he was like, I know he's like, I come here during your last moments. He was like, you were the guy who said you wanted him to crash and die or yeah, crash and burn. And then like, they're like, I, I didn't get that at first. I just knew that this character was menacing. Like I that's, was like, that's pretty chilling just in the, in the yeah. idea of it. Wow. Yeah. And then like, um, Bunuel does a really cool shot, like where, um, the guys are talking to, so the camera is on the guys talking inside the car, thinking that here he's talking to the devil. And then when the guys peel away, the devil's right behind them. So he, the devil can go wherever he wants. So mm. he, he magically will appear wherever he's yeah. just a shift. He's a shifty guy is what they were showing. So then, um, what is it? The guys are walking away. And what happened earlier in the film is that one of the older man, um, his shoes were falling apart. And then, so the devil, he knew about that. He was like, Hey, come back here. He was like, aren't you going to take the shoes? He says that about the dead guy. He's like, he's like, take the dead guy's shoes. Cause they're really nice. Like, yeah. and so the old guy's like, yeah, why not? So they're just throughout the film, they're showing all these things like temptation of the devil, you know, the morality of people, what's right and wrong, good, you know, good and bad type of thing. And I love that. I love that about the film because it, it really brought it home how much it showed that. Um, yeah. Also the hypocrisies. Very Many much. Ma- yeah. Very much. There was a whole sequence, um, I believe in a forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a forest, there's like, you think it's like a mass going on. And so like the priest, like, you know, and then all of a sudden, actually everyone breaks off and the priest ends up going with like two ladies and then everyone breaks off into like having sex basically. I think the, so. the the hypocrisy that he's pointing out is that people in power will always take advantage of that power. It doesn't matter where you come Well, from. desires. Yes. Yeah. Desires, you know. Um, so even within the, the manners of organized religion, you know, there's still desires. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the whole movie, you always hear about like, I think they always talked about like, oh, well, the Virgin Mary, you know, she's she's pure and all that stuff. And like, you know, it's like, she has, you know, uh, she has no original sin and, and blah, blah, blah. And then, oh yeah, um, during that mass that was in the forest, that, that was the hypocrisy of it was the priest and talking with the people who were there that they were like, the body is sinful, you know, we're born with sin, we're all sinners. And then they break off into having sex. But that was, that was showing that, you know, the body is, you know. So I love that it, it showed that, that type of thing. And that was, that was definitely like throughout the the film and the, uh, once again the film does play uh, with time so it goes back in time like many like it, it goes back to a sequence where like um michelle Picoli, he's the he plays the marquis de sad mm, okay <laughs> so yeah so i thought that was pretty cool but yeah it plays with time periods um historical aspects um lots of scenes including um the life of jesus christ and you could say even in this movie Maybe somewhat controversial, actually, how how Bunuel depicts Jesus Christ. I kind of yeah. saw him. Um, I don't know if maybe like 
I don't know how other viewers might perceive Jesus Christ, but I perceived him as somewhat of like kind of arrogant actually in the movie. And I was reading like someone's letterbox review and they also like confirmed it too, that they were saying that like Jesus Christ was in this movie, that they were, that he was perceived as kind of like, kind of cocky actually, because there's a moment where all of his disciples and followers are at the table. And this is back in the times of Christ. So um, because I told you, I'm telling you, it's like going back and forth in time. Mm-hmm. So he's at the table um, with his followers and disciples and he's having, um, I guess they're having a meal together. And one of them is like, tell us the story, Christ, about, I don't know, helping out someone. And then Christ is like telling the story. And then he stops and like, they're like, why did you stop? And he's like, hold on a minute. And it's just like, he gets like a glass and he starts drinking it. Like all like, kind of like, <laughs> it's like, let me hold my beer. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it felt so, so random, but like, kind of like, kind of full of himself, you know? And it's like, who's to say though, you know? Like, I, I think what Buñuel was trying to do is, like, critique the absolute, like, traditional icon- iconography that people have with some of these figures, such as even Jesus Christ, that it, w- it would be extremely taboo to touch upon. But, right. um, yeah, and then he goes back into, like, his speech and all that stuff. But I was just, like, and then he even bragged about, like, turning the water into wine, too. Like, they're, like, we have no more wine, like um, uh, Jesus or something like that. And he was like, no, I got this. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> I, stand back. Yeah, stand back. <laughs> I got this, you know, like, so yeah, like who's to say that maybe, you know, I mean, he was just a regular guy. I don't know, you know, so I, yeah, I think that that's, that's definitely um, Boonwell, like he wanted to show him as an ordinary man, you know, just, you know, making mistakes, laughing, you know, just showing, Show, yeah showing him as just a like regular joe kind of thing so um but yeah what i'm saying conclusion yeah i deeply enjoyed this one um i think this might be his most realized commentary on religion uh i mean i took it that way um but yeah what a biting satire on catholicism and like organized religion all told with like surreal humor so um i just want to say i did watch this one it's streaming uh currently for free on tubi so last film of the day so you, I, I know you really enjoyed the Milky Way and it sounds very, very good. But I, I actually, in my opinion, I think this film is, is, is a complete sort of masterpiece of Boonwell's discography, uh, which I hope you see one day because I really think you'd enjoy it, Marissa. It's mm-hmm. Viridiana, released in 
this one was such a uh, second time I watched it I was way more enriched than the first time like mm-hmm. so much more to, to oh you've seen it before mm-hmm. mm-hmm first time I watched it I, I did love it but this time around I was just in awe of the yeah the 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 completeness it's not only a great you know commentary but it's also a great film and that mm-hmm. was blew my mind um okay so Viridiana is a drama dark comedy about a young nun the titular name Viridiana who's about to take her final vows to become a nun but is urgently invited to her estranged uncle's estate before she does so at the request of mother superior and against her personal wishes she goes to visit her uncle whose intentions with Viridiana quickly become tempestuous. This starts off very strange, but mm-hmm. we'll get into that in a second. It is written by Bunuel along with Julio Alejandro and Benito Perez Galdos, who is uncredited for in the film for the adaptation from the novel of this. And this cast includes familiars, Silvia Pinal, Francisco Rabal, and his alter ego, Fernando Rey, (laughs) who plays the uncle. (laughs) The slimy uncle or what? Yeah, yeah, slimy is putting it kindly. He is, uh, it gets very Freudian. So Boonwell, once, you know, as in the exterminating angel, he actually opens up with a church. And I feel like that was very common during his era in Mexico. He would open up with an image of a church, uh, his obsession with religion as an institution, also with Catholicism and its uh, iconography. Uh, it is introduced with the Hallelujah hymn, the <laughs> traditional Hallelujah song that I am not going to sing because I will not do that <laughs> on air. But yeah, <laughs> I, I love the inclusion at the start because at the end, this song comes back and it's just a complete farce and it's hilarious in, in the moment. But more on the ending in a sec. I think this film is Boonwell's at his most aggressive and refined because I think nearly every scene has some kind of metaphoric jab or metaphoric question about desire in the face of piety. And Mm -hmm. it's all about Catholicism, repressed sexuality, and not only that, but fascism, the idea, the ideologies of fascism, which, um, it encompasses a lot of the political map, but really it comes down to uh, corruption Mm -hmm. and greed along with modernity. So the characters are kind of imagined as embodiments of these different institutions. So for example, you have Viridiana the nun whose piety represents the, what we were talking about earlier, this uh, unquestioned goodness about, you know, the Catholic religion. Mm -hmm. And then you have the uncle who is kind of this uh, older generation, bitter, uh, lonely, you know, dying, and um, is tempest, you know, has a tempestuous relationship with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And then you have his son, played by Francisco Rabal, who's the modern capitalist. And so it's interesting. There's a twist that I don't, I wouldn't share normally, a sort of spoiler that I wouldn't share normally, but it's important to understand the storyline of this story. So, spoiler alert, you can skip ahead if you don't want to listen to this. But basically, what happens is as the, the relationship with the uncle is this the uncle is obsessed with Viridiana because he reminds her of his wife, which was her aunt. Mm-hmm. And there's even a shot in the film of a portrait of the aunt that 
looks just like Viridiana, Sylvia Pinal. Mm -hmm. And in one situation, he makes her, or he asks her actually, to dress up in his wife's wedding gown so that he can remember the memory of his wife. Mm -hmm. And she questions it, but she goes along with it out of kindness. And what ends up happening is that he confesses his, his admiration for her. And then it starts getting to a point where it's like, okay, you're my uncle. What are you doing? Like I, you know, she gets very, very fearful and he almost, it's the desire thing. He, the only way I can think about it is this, he castrates himself of his desire because mm. of the conscious. But I think that that's also a very religious sort of guilty conscious move at the same time. And it's dynamics like these that are very fascinating because the end result is this, Viridiana wants to leave. And so she does. And as she's about to leave the town on the bus to go back to the, to the church, one of the local uh, police officers taps her on the shoulder and says, uh, are you Viridiana? You have to come with us. And they take her back to the house and the uncle has hanged himself. And then of course, the pious woman that, you know, she, that she's portrayed as she blames it all on herself. It's like a really big trauma. At this point, the son comes into the picture. And so it starts to get interesting there because she takes over the estate mm -hmm. and then she invites this poor underclass homeless, you know, uh, society to go live on the, to go live on in the land. And it becomes a total chaotic show because Bunuel's portrayal of this underclass is seething. The, the whole portrayal of every character seems to be this sort of bitter, pessimistic portrayal because the underclass is seen, is portrayed as exactly what the stereotypes are, which are like these, these ungrateful, not like, you know, like these, these hoarder squatters. And it all comes to a head in this last, in this final like 20 minutes climax where Viridiana and the rest and the son and the housekeeper leave for the night and the homeless enter the house on the upper stairs and they basically have what I call is a last supper, <laughs> which uh -huh. is this, which is this really, really just brutal string of events that unravel which complete chaos you have to watch it for yourself but man is there some hard-hitting perspective in this whole entire climax that is to me jaw-dropping to me it's it's Bunuel at his most bitter it is absolutely you know scathing just how nasty his perspective in this is in this film but it's eye-opening regardless and in a way it's flipped upon you as the viewer to ask yourself are you are you really are you really that innocent or are you really judging as well are you a hypocrite as well as these people as everybody and i think by the end of it i think we all he's trying to tell us all that we're all just a bunch of hypocrites and that i can get along with and mm -hmm. in conclusion the really i think by that point alone i think this is really Bunuel's masterpiece because it's almost a meta feeling of hypocrisy just watching this film and Although I haven't seen every entry, I really say confidently that this is his most concise criticism and an act of vengeance. And it dismantles our pride by forcing us to really reckon with our own hypocrisy and the futility of any belief. And to me, 
I think this is really anarchy at its finest. And if you want to watch this, this is on the Criterion channel or as well, you can purchase this on the Criterion Blu-ray. Okay, so uh, my films that I chose uh, for this episode were The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, The Phantom of Liberty, and the last film, uh, The Milky Way. And the films I chose for this episode were Unchan Andalou, The Exterminating Angel, and Viridiana. So quite controversial, this episode and this filmmaker, wouldn't you say? Very- very uh, on par um on par with ken russell ken russell's uh the devils in the rated x episode on the rated x episode good good plug um but yeah i was telling eric that i see so many similarities between the devils and the milky way in terms of uh maybe controversy for sure obviously because they're touching on like taboo subjects but also because the two movies actually uh they claim in the movies that like these are based on historical fact that these these events happened. And maybe that's why it's so shocking in the films, like especially, the, well, the devils, yeah, like some of the stuff that happens, they're like, my God. But like, um, yes, in the Milky Way, I mean, hey, just as equal, like some of the stuff they did, you know, with the heresies, very shocking too. Um, because the same thing with the, with the Catholicism, it is like, especially in this movie, the critique on religion is that what Boonwell is saying is that, you know, like question it, you know, question this stuff. Um, that's what his commentary is saying, you know, that we should be questioning these things that are stated so matter of factly. I'm going to bring up something that you said a little while ago that I'd like to add to that I think um, for me has helped me put, put into perspective at least some of the bitterness and why it's so bitter. Um, you'd mentioned that um that Bunuel that these criticisms aren't they aren't always just criticisms they you know this like with the Milky Way there seems to be like a wanting to discover but I think that every I think that every one of Bunuel's criticisms really are an act of love I think mm-hmm. his criticisms are purposeful in his love his actual real love of, of Catholicism and the reason why is because I think the criticism is a way of trying to trying to you know tell other people you know to be better or to to rethink something or to trying to get trying to point out a flaw and i feel like that is such an act of love in a way from Boonwell. for i mean just look what he's saying look at how audacious these statements are and how he's going to the very core of taboo to try and get rid of this, the, the sort of vileness that's, that we've all found in, in our experiences with religion, to try and make peace with that. Yeah, well, I mean, it ties back to his quote, I'm an atheist, thank God. <laughs> I don't know why I love, I love that quote so much. I feel like <laughs> that sums up who Winwell is. Like, <laughs> he's an atheist and he can, you know, comment on the, the criticism within organized religion, Catholicism, at the same time, Within that, he also talks about the mysteries of faith, yeah. uh, because that was present within the Milky Way. Um, and and let's just let's just tie it in with like some other movie. Okay, so like my other one, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Let's break down that title. There's he he said that in the booklet too, within the Criterion box set, that um, he has a fascination with the bourgeois. Is that that's the whole thing, mm-hmm. and. He, 
And on researching his life is that, yes, he can critique, you know, the bourgeois and all that stuff, but he's also a part of it <laughs> as well, if you really followed this guy's life. So this guy is complex in that way you know he's common he's critiquing on these on these people um these social classes this religion but he's very much a part of it as well so it makes him very complex and you can yeah you can call him like you know you said about hypocrites well he's <laughs> he's a hypocrite but that's not i'm not meaning it in a in a bad tone it's just it's how we are as well we all are hypocrites and that's his message really in Viridiana and why I think he's in his territory to say the things that he does because it, it first comes with the acknowledgement of your fault you know the recognition that believe it or not you ain't, you ain't hot shit <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and I think that that you know that's a silly term for what's really the the proper way to say it which is you know pride and, and arrogance and um, recognition of that allows you to also point that out in other people but also say for yourself yeah look i'm no different from you you know i mm -hmm. just the same i don't claim to be above this this is who we are so to me that's what makes him really a such a such a masterful artist in my opinion uh what and one of my favorites it's the the subtle humility in that recognition of his hypocrisy i think it comes a territory that especially in you know as we know the egos that can happen in heart art house cinema um the recognition of that at least is refreshing for me yeah no definitely and i i think this um i think Buñuel's career is honestly it's it's pretty remarkable if you really think about it like he went through so many like different periods you know within his uh his career and to think that like you know um I was reading that as well is that where some directors may start falling off in their later years you know I, I could name some that um well yeah like <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not gonna name them but <laughs> there are some directors <laughs> who like really fell off really really horribly during their later you know later work and Boonwell if anything uh close to what he passed I believe in 83 or something um I think his last film was uh oh god 77 or 79 not yeah sure. it was uh the obscure object of desire 79 i think or something like that but um let's just say that he went out on a bang because mm. <laughs> his later work period is like pretty i mean he went out with a bang yeah let's just put it that way um, at, a, at a high point in his career really at a high point yeah because he was he was already uh a lot older then and yeah so very prolific uh, director. And I don't know, I learned a lot myself, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also, I think that the age, you know, as he got older, I feel like the wisdom only developed more and more. I mean, you take the Verdiana, you know, made in 1961 and then the Milky Way, you know, almost eight years later mm -hmm. and how much his perspective changed on the same topic between that mm -hmm. time period. I think that's a fascinating thing to, to to look at, you know, eight years and how much he's kind of grown more, uh, uh, more inquisitive, but also a little bit more accepting of the of that of the religious hypocrisy, uh, and so that transformation is is why watching you know studying directors you know whole catalogs like this is fascinating because as people change, so do their so do their films, so do their so do their works of art, and who knows, you may connect with his you know more 
anarchy, you know, chaos side of, of his younger years, or he maybe his more refined years. But regardless, even though we weren't able to hit on every point of his career, I think there's a part that I think, you know, maybe people might be more attuned to and, and you know, definitely check out the ones that we didn't get to talk about, um, such as his other films in Mexico, um, his Spanish films, also some of the more, uh, the other uh, spiritually religious films, Simon of the Desert, those are all we're checking out. But if it's okay, I'd like to wrap up with his final public words from his autobiography, which uh, I can't encourage enough everybody go read, um, My Last Sigh, which is where he says, I'd love to rise from the grave every 10 years or so and go buy a few newspapers. Ghostly pale, sliding silently along the walls, my paper under my arms, I'd return to the cemetery and read all about the disasters in the world before bawling back to sleep, safe and secure in my tomb. The anarchist to his death. <laughs> I love it. Um, yes, so Boonwell, more is to say, he's wonderful. What a guy. What a guy. And um, yes, let's continue his legacy. Go watch his films. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find us on social media. Our handle is at filmchatterpod. We will leave our links also in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. See ya.